A wise man once said, Analyzing humor is like dissecting a frog. Few people are interested, and the frog dies. Well, we're going to ignore that entirely as we dive into the nitty gritty nerdy side of comedy, asking why does that work? Why doesn't that work? And who the hell cares? Join me, Harry Cole, as I invite a guest to examine and scrutinize their favorite comedian's work to find all the blood, guts, and major organs inside. Welcome to Dissecting the Frog. Hello and welcome back to Dissecting the Frog. Today we're joined by Sam Jones. He's an ex-president at the Comedy Society here in York. He's also ex-head of stand-up. How you doing, Sam? Hey, how you doing? Yeah, it's me. I'm back. <laughs> okay. Why? Why am I back? Doesn't make any sense. No, I uh, I used to run Society over COVID. Graduated now. Um, and I just I just I just chill. I exist as we all do in this ethereal space. Yeah, what are you what are you doing now that you're not at the society? I imagine that comedy so was your entire personality and you're now just alone in your room doing nothing. Yeah, actually. Shockingly accurate. <laughs> I uh, no, I yeah, I, I've just I have to I will say comedy sock is the one reason I now have the job I have. I was very unemployable, but um <laughs> keeping a society alive during a pandemic uh, works well for remote jobs, turns out. Uh, there's a lot of decent examples you can give. So I was very grateful for that. Otherwise, I would not be... I would be. I would have no personality, and I would have no money as well. And I'll take one of them. If I have to take money, I'll take money. <laughs> so I'm really excited about this week's topic. Tell. I, I mean, it's not as sort of easily summarized in a sentence, but what is it you want to dissect this week? What is it you want to talk about? Yeah, no, good luck <laughs> making a title out of this one. Good luck on the no SEO. Um, <laughs> well, gem basically, those who don't know, uh, when I was at uni, I studied theatre, uh, writing, directing, and performance. And under that banner, for when I wrote my diss, my dissertation, I chose to write on stand-up. And something that particularly has been interested to me in stand-up has been, in recent years, how things have... Uh, there's been a sort of change uh, in the content of stand-up comedy to be a lot more serious. There's a lot of comedians moving towards creating shows, uh, stand-up shows that are um, maybe less focused on comedy and more focused on a central message that is either deeply personal to the comedian or um, has some sort of serious undertones. And um, yeah, how common that's become. And I think that's a really interesting trend. It was odd because when, when you first sort of said, oh, this is what I did my dissertation on and this is what I thought I would come and talk about, I realised I hadn't noticed it had happened, it, but it, it very clearly has. I think in my lifetime, I've, I've seen comedians make that shift and I've seen the, the tone and the content of these shows change. And it was uh, fascinating that, that you sort of noticed that. Um, how was it researching that? Like, what did you sort of come across? Is there a big discussion academically about this topic? There... There wasn't, and then literally in the past few years, it's sort of come out. And what's in the main thing I discovered when I was sort of doing a lot of research, because I did a lot, a lot of research for this dissertation. And I should say, I myself, I'm not peer reviewed. Any sort of things I bring up are not peer reviewed. <laughs> it is just generally, I did do a lot, a lot of reading on this, um, which yeah. was made that easy by the fact there wasn't as much available. But um, basically, over the past 20 years, 30 years, there wasn't really anything written on stand up. 
Um, this one guy uh, from, who I think is a, currently a lecturer in drama at Kent, his name's Oliver Double. He does the majority of the British stand-up research. And generally, there wasn't that much about specifically that sort of trend I'd noticed. Um, it was mainly just about trying to define stand-up and trying to analyze how it works, the relationship between the stand-up and its audience and how that sort of is different from other um, live performance. But um, the, the main sort of trend that I've seen is ever since, uh, I think it was 2018, when Hannah Gadsby's uh, Nanette came out, that's when people really started to take notice and record that. And I still don't think it's um, a widespread research. It's mainly a lot of people writing specifically about Nanette. It's not so much all the other um, pieces of art surrounding that, all the other sort of shows. Some of them get referenced slightly. Um, yeah. Like one that gets referenced alongside Nanette a lot is Tig Nataro did a show. I can't remember what it's called, but it was about like their terminal cancer diagnosis. Um, yes. And it's that, and that was that same sort of idea. A lot of it's to do with trauma and bringing trauma into stand-up comedy. But um, that's the sort of it's it's been only in the past four years that it's actually some some things have been written about it. I mean, I wonder if the listeners are already thinking of some of the people they can think of who maybe made this transition. But let's think about some examples. The one that jumps to my mind is actually uh, James Acaster. I don't know how much you've seen of his most recent stuff because Repertoire was this you know huge Netflix phenomenon that introduced him to a really mainstream audience. And then I was lucky enough to see his uh, next tour after that, and it took a very different approach tonally. And then this uh, this tour was live streamed and, and is available online, but I don't think it's been seen as by many people. But that was a very stark difference. So he his his most recent show talked a lot about his, his mental health and a breakup and, and and how those things were related. And essentially, it's a summary of the the worst year of his life. And it is extremely comical at moments, but he doesn't shy away from the the truth of it, essentially, and some of the very serious mental health issues that he was he was going through. And compare that to the tone of repertoire, which is very absurd, all sort of highly fictionalized character version of James A. Castor, essentially. It was stark, and I I thought it was fantastic, and I thought it was a breath of fresh air. Whereas something that was sort of just a rehash of the things that we got from repertoire may have felt exhausted. Is that the sort of similar thing that you've, you've noticed in some of the examples you can think of? Yes, it is. Uh, except, and this might, this might cause us to, this might cause a bit of discussion, but James Acaster was one of the examples. However, he was one of my examples that I thought of as to how someone who's not done it very successfully is, is actually what I was thinking. But I have... I think there's a lot to consider in James Acaster's change in his material over the past, let's say, few years, two years, uh, that has that it makes it a lot more complicated than simply I want to do more serious material. Now, this is where my research doesn't have any like credible sources, <laughs> but I've heard a lot of things uh, in my reading and through people who've seen him live. Uh, I went to go see Cold Lasagna. Hate myself, ninety nine nine, whatever it's called, live, um, and had, and 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 had different experiences than what they were expecting, basically. Yeah, who are some of the other examples that you uh, you thought of? Sure. Well, um, 
So the first one that comes to mind, the immediate sort of one that comes to mind, and we won't dwell on this too long because I know you've already done an episode on him, but Bo Burnham is the main yes. sort of standout to me. This is uh, probably the most successful example of someone moving from one, this is my brand, to yeah. a new brand. And that was because he started out as a kid putting out YouTube songs, um, funny YouTube songs that were edgy and like very dark in its sense of humor because they're written by a teenager and everyone has a dark sense of humor when they're a teenager. And I know even the sort of songs that he's, I've heard in podcasts, him come to, some of them he comes to regret because of just how sort of tonally dark and maybe like unnecessarily, yeah. uh, I don't want to say offensive, but just sort of jarring they might be. And he started off doing that and then he was sort of got an album, got became really popular as sort of a YouTube star and then sort of began doing stand-up uh, shows with these songs and then it sort of as it came to realize this isn't what he wanted to, this isn't what he was expecting. This is sort of a very complicated uh, setting for him and so he starts putting out songs like uh, Art is Dead dealing with sort of his approach to writing songs and how he feels about being in this successful position all of a sudden through just writing silly songs and then that becomes successful and then you've got in his uh, stand-up show Words he does a mix of these very comical dark songs and these very introspective songs until that eventually sort of snowballs and you get him quitting stand-up with um, after Make Happy because of him having yeah. constant anxiety attacks before shows, um, and then moving on to write eighth grade, and then finally finishing with Inside, which is the most introspective. No, I'm gonna, I'd, I'd argue not stand-up, but um, is introspective in terms of his comedy work yet. It is probably as far away from his original stuff as you can get. Still got the original glimmer of it, but that's like the example I thought of. And the other one, there's one other one that um, is less common that I think of a lot, which is Simon Amstel. I don't know how familiar you are with Simon Amstel. Uh, yeah, I, I know their earlier stuff. I'm aware they've got a more recent special that I've not actually seen. I did a lot of I didn't do I did a lot of personal research into Simon Amstel because I genuinely found him interesting as a character because he um started out on Pop World, which I think was before our time, which I think was a show. <laughs> I think it was some sort of music themed show. He was like a, a music journalist interviewer sort of character, and then he became to host Nevermind the Buzzcocks. I saw a lot on YouTube about Simon from Simon Amstel's as compilations of him hosting, and it seemed like a very much of its own thing. So I was tracked them down and I watched a lot of these episodes from like 2007. And his, basically his whole shtick was he just told these really, really dark jokes and he'd make fun of absolutely everyone on the panel to the point where some people couldn't take it and he's famously people walked off the show. Yes, yes. But And then suddenly he sort of disappeared for a while and has re-entered probably in the last five years. But all of his sets now, if you see him doing stand-up, he's talking very much about like his personal life, um, his own struggles with his sexuality, with his parents and like fi trying to find meaning in his life. It's very, very like, I remember when I first watched it, what's the one on Netflix? I think it's called Numb or Let Go. I think, I can't remember, I get them mixed up. But um, it's like hard to call it stand-up because it is funny and very self-deprecating, very um, existential. And I didn't find myself laughing that much. I just mainly got me thinking. Like it, it, it's, it's very, very, it's so far away from what he used to do. And I think he's doing it quite successfully to a very specific audience. He's very. I don't think he's someone who wants to be performing that much anymore. But when he does, he does these very uh, introspective um, shows on his uh, mental health and yeah, w w the whole sort of why why am I here? What am I doing? Sort of thing. I think he has a lot of like again, doesn't want to be that sort of character that he was back in the day. Sort of thing. It's it's really interesting. I suppose, and I guess part of my next question then is, 
obviously a lot of these comedians they are like a brand and people like familiarity with brand and they want to go into a, a show or to buy a ticket know what they're going to get and often you'd expect at least that maybe a, you know a, a stand-up show that someone was going to pay a ticket for would just be an extension of the version of that we see on tv on panel shows and interviews but equally across a sort of a longer career this is like a musician or, or an artist in that sense you would expect their music to change and you would expect it to reflect their personal experience and I wonder to what extent you think it's only natural that a comedian would change their output as they change as a person as it becomes to reflect more of what they want to say that's a very good question I've never thought about it like that um I think it makes sense I think it makes more I think that makes sense more so than it does for music in a sense and because with with music, obviously people cover music. People can people sing other people's songs, and that and sure, music is meant to be marketed, but it's still got some sort of um, connection to the artist, some sort of deep meaning. Unless it's like absolutely like mass marketed, especially create a boy band. We're going to write songs that appeal to as many people as we can. Repeat stuff, Bo Burnham esque sort of <laughs> yeah. stuff. I think. What's interesting about stand-up is a stand-up show. You can't just take a stand-up show and perform it. Like you can't just go and like do Rob Beckett's hour-long show yourself. That doesn't make any sense. If you're going out talking about someone else's kids or someone else's life, <laughs> stand-up is so much about people's own experiences. And I think, yeah, you're you're very right that stand-ups have to market themselves because it is still a business. You still have to make sure you're known. You still need to fit into a category. You're not mark. You're not going out on a panel show or like a lineup and mark and being like, "This is who I am as a person." It's not Tinder, basically. It's not like yeah. this is who I am. How many people like me? You have to create like a very specific version of yourself from your material and market that, and then have some deal of separation if people do or do not like you. Because stand up, again, is a very much immediate response. Do people like you? Do people not like you? Which is the whole point of like the audience interaction, I guess. You get an immediate response. They either laugh and like accept you, or they don't and um, reject you. And so, it makes sense that yeah, a comedian would want to change as they as they age and, I, and like musicians. And I think probably like musicians, um, there'll be an album that is everyone's like favorite like magnum opus of this is what the comedian this is the best the comedian's done and then they'll probably go and do later stuff later on in life and people will be less keen on it and sort of because it might be more personal to the comedian or the artist but it might not be as financially successful but um i think it is probably a very similar dynamic of um a fan base and giving a fan base what they want versus what you're actually creatively able to put out well that's true and and also i i feel Say what you will, whether or not you like or dislike this this change into darker, more personal experiences in their stand-up. Sometimes it works for me because it is the surprise of it. So I think about Acaster, but a lot of these examples is these comedians become almost celebrities and you become interested in their lives like we do reality TV stars. And then the more personal the show, the more kind of fascinated you are in what they do and how their life works. And then hence, as an extension of that, how interested you are in, in their personal lives as well. I almost think that it's the very idea that the uh, 
the personal stuff is so shocking or jarring or or not to be expected that is the joke in itself it's a bit of a sucker punch I I definitely agree. Yeah, they're, they're having like a little surprise aspect to a show is always good. It's not good to go in completely expecting every like punchline. The whole the whole point of comedy is to misdirect. But I do I do think um it's 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 still good to have a certain marketability of like we know exactly we 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 do know the sort of thing we're going to be going in for. I think that's something I read at some point in my writing. That there's an expectation of an audience of a certain brand of comedy. They're going in expecting to laugh, but they're also, for example, someone going into a Michael McIntyre show would expect something very different from someone going into a Stuart Lee show, if that makes sense. Yes, they're very... that's a comparison that's often made in the comedy mm. world. Yeah, well, just because it's just so massively different. So yeah, I think, I think it's like perfectly natural, and I think it's perfectly fine, but there are people... That, I guess the question is then, how far can someone, can a comedian go before they leave their fan base behind. Like, there's still got to be a certain amount of respect for the fan... Once you've got a fan base, the respect for giving them stuff that's still what they're here for. Like, if you went to a Ross Noble show and he did, like, an hour of political commentary, you'd be confused because Ross Noble (laughs) has built a brand on being a wacky improv i'm just going to say whatever comes to the top of my head talking to people complete nonsense comedian if he went in and was like doing this whole 90 like 60 minutes disparaging the the government's response to covid19 it would feel it would feel strange and you'd sort of be like well this is not what i've come here for it might still be good it might still be funny but that's and i think maybe what what i was going to pick from what you said was what's happened in the last few years or last 10 years or so as YouTube's become a thing. So people want to know more about the person that they're obsessing over, the celebrity. Yeah. It's no, gone are the days of the 80s where, you know, you just see someone on TV um, and that person was untouchable. You couldn't imagine anyone, uh, like, them being that level of celebrity. Uh, you'd never, uh, never imagine seeing that in your day-to-day. Now people become known from their bedrooms and you, the people are falling in love more with people as opposed to products. Um, yes, very pe- well put. People get cancelled all the time for being who they are, nothing to do with the product they're putting out. You know, this idea of how far can you go before you leave your fan base behind? Also, how far can you go before you're leaving stand-up behind? Mm-hmm. And you're no longer doing what could traditionally be defined as stand-up, which is a pretty natural transition into something like Nanette, which has been debated as to whether or not it even counts as stand-up. It's won a lot of stand-up awards. Mm-hmm. And it, it sort of fronts as what we see as stand-up. It's a, it's a person on stage in front of a microphone. And, you know, is the goal to make people laugh? Or is that not even necessarily what's necessary for stand-up anymore? What do you think? Well, that's the thing. Is that's kind of what I was writing my whole diss about. That was the angle I went in, which was stand-up's changed so much since it was... In, since its inception back in the 40s, 50s, if you want to trace it like all the way back. Um, and it's gone through so many changes and is now in so many different forms that something like, for example, an arena style show is under the set, which where, you know, it's the most basic observational humor mass appeal because it's for an arena full of people. Of course, you need to tell the most like wide hitting jokes compared to Nanette, which is alienating half of its audience. 
um, by specifically saying straight white men do better. Um, and that's where, that's where a lot of its hit back comes from because straight white men don't want to do better. <laughs> they, they famously do not want to do better and they famously are feeling attacked. Um, not realizing that that is exactly how most other demographics felt for the last 30 years in um, stand-up. That's kind of... Well, ex- yeah, exactly. That's kind of like... Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but I find it interesting. Oliver Double traced stand-up's evolution in Britain over the past 50 years, starting in music halls, then going to working man's clubs, and then the alternative comedy scene grown from people like uh, Rick Mayall and um, uh, Alexi Sale and like the Young Ones crew and Dawn- French and Saunders, that sort of group creating what we now sort of are more familiar with. But when it was uh, in working man's clubs... Um, not only would comedians tell like the same jokes as each other, they'd be like they just tell jokes from joke books. They, it was all stuff that just reaffirmed straight white men's status. It was all sexist. It was all homophobic. It was all racist. It was everything. And there's so many like noted examples of that. That's just what it was. And it didn't really get better. It got a little bit better, but it didn't get much better as time went on. Uh, going to the alternative comedy scene. And so that's just an example of you know that that's what stand up was for a while. And now that things are kind of being turned around on that people aren't happy for some reason but in my eyes the net is stand-up that is my opinion on my research i think but i take a very wide lens to stand-up um like there's been examples of because it is a takedown of the genre it is taking the genre apart to its base elements and doing something different there's a lot of people argue it isn't stand-up i think even hannah gatsby has said that it isn't stand-up but if we're, if we're coming from like a specifically de- definition standpoint, um, I think it still counts. And a lot of people say it doesn't stand up because it's funny. Partly that is from a fair point of its intent is not to be funny. Part of that comes from, in my experience, uh, pushback from like a knee-jerk reaction from offended parties, uh, which is also what makes research difficult when emotions get involved. But the other thing that I was thinking of in my research, which I kind of was going on towards the end, but I, I but um, was too large of a subject to properly tackle. Is the idea of it is stand up, but maybe it's a good idea to introduce the idea of subgenres within stand up to better identify. So this can be stand under the banner of stand up comedy, but we can identify it separately from stand up in an arena versus stand up that deals with trauma or has more personal attachment behind it. Something that's more like a, sometimes more like a TED talk than it is a comedy show. Yeah, that's true. And I think also with a clearer understanding of what those subplots were, people would have better expectations and wouldn't feel sort of so attacked when they saw something they weren't expecting. Which, uh, I mean, it's funny with Hannah Gatsby as well. People saying, oh, it's not good because it's not funny. And that makes you a bad comedian. And, and she responded to say, I, I, I know it's not funny. Like I know how jokes work. It's my job, and I knew I wasn't doing jokes. Like that's the, that's the point. And the sort of patronising angle where people would be like, "Well, it wasn't very funny, so it wasn't very good." And that's just one thing. Like, what are the subplots? Not subplots. Sub genres would, would you sort of feel were necessary to differentiate when looking at the modern lens of stand-up? I think the pandemic, especially, has, has changed that as well. The way that like Bo Burnham reinvented the the stage performance in his own house like where is stand-up changing that's there's a there's a it's a very it's a very big question 
is is the reality of that. That was a question I was going to try and answer in my dissertation, and then I realized this is way too big. You could come up with a model to try and categorize it, but if we take it from as many different forms that it exists in, you've obviously got uh, stand-up in arenas, the most popular way to consume stand-up at the moment. Um, that is uh, big, big celebrity-style events um, with people like Michael McIntyre, with... Um, Peter Kay, uh, Russell Howard, and these are comedians that will tell jokes that aren't offensive um, because they're trying to appeal to as wide uh, a lens as possible. They've got to fill an arena that isn't a niche audience, that is a mainstream audience. So it's very base level observational humor. Um, and yet it can be to the extent where it's more like if it's in an arena, which is usually meant to see like, I don't know, rock and roll stars or. Or, or like football games, there's there's an element. This is you're going to see a celebrity. There's that level of show, which is more a celebration of a figure rather than a critical like, is this person good? Is this not? If you go to arena show, people will laugh. There's no good doubt about that. It's that big an event. Yeah. That, unless like you go out there and absolutely say nothing, or just completely do a left turn, people will laugh. Um, then on the other hand, you have stand up like Hannah Gadsby's, and I think that the best term. I found to describe this is stand-up theater, which was a term coined by someone called, I don't know how to pronounce their name, so I apologize, Tori Gillespie or something like that. Um, they basically did a whole sort of, I think it was in getting their thesis or their master's or something, uh, in, 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 uh, uh, some research into using empathy in stand-up. Um, and stand-up theater is the idea that of an hour-long show that is stand-up, but has a storyline or an emotional arc or has some sort of catharsis at the end. So it isn't straight just jokes, it is more bringing an audience along on a journey. Um, and I think that definitely in the net would fit alongside that. There is an arc, there are, um, it is obviously a very emotional ending. There is a callback sort of way of storytelling where at, at first they introduce the idea of them telling jokes um, and them being the tension in the room and then them dissolving that tension um, by telling the story of time that they uh, were misidentified as a um, as a as, as a, a man hitting on someone's girlfriend, um, but then upon realizing that uh, she was female, being left alone, um, not realizing that in fact she was trying to hit on this man's girlfriend, um, and then that creating laughs, and then like forty minutes later revealing that, that wasn't the truth of the story, and in fact she, uh, she was uh, assaulted because of who she was and that sort of structure of a show which is very specifically made to uh, get across a point but also in, specifically made in how it deals with its comedy so I think that's a whole other genre um, that is very popular right now uh, those are the two main ones identified but then you've also got stuff like you know if we're not even talking about celebrity culture normal stand-up shows normal comedy stock shows if you like people go out and do a tight five or a tight ten not names you know, people just going out for a drink wanting to listen to something. That's still stand-up. Uh, and then you've got Netflix specials that are just sort of an hour of stand-up but an hour of jokes with no sort of narrative of any kind. Most recent one I can think of is Philly Philly Wang Wang, Phil Wang's yeah. stand-up show, the one on Netflix. It is an hour long um, and it's sort of just him telling jokes for uh, an hour. Probably a better example would be uh, an hour-long show where it is just sort of one-liners, a one-night comedian, someone like Jimmy Carr um, or Tim Vine or something. 
Yeah, Stuart Francis. Stuart well. Francis, that's what I was thinking of, yeah. Um, and then finally, probably, one thing that I was going to look into is Zoom stand-up, which is mostly gone, thankfully, <laughs> but it was a thing for a while where people were doing stand-up over Zoom. Um, and it's like, well, this isn't um, in front of a live audience. This is not interacting directly with anyone. There is no, like, vibrations in a room that make people laugh. It is purely its own sort of thing, but it's still stand-up. And inside could be argued to be, um, like, Zoom stand-up to, like, the, the top level. <laughs> where, it, where it, But it is, but since it's, it's, it's hard to argue with inside, I think inside would have to be a whole other thing completely really but those i mean there's that many different sort of types of uh these genres that it could be it, it, it's just that it's the problem is it's just so vast it's like where do you where do you start where do you start with all that to jump sort of just randomly back into a something you mentioned about nanette i can't think of a stronger transition i thought uh the the example which which you're right in, in saying with the going back to the story and saying okay here was the real truth of that story what that meant to me and what I felt Hannah Gatsby was trying to say there was that when comedians try and address these issues on stage they have to cap it at a point which is funny they have to cap mm -hmm. it at the joke and they have and the stand-up structure puts that joke or sorry ends that story where it has to end it because that's the funniest point and yeah she didn't shy away from saying I now want to address this issue because I'm talking about it for the reasons I'm talking about it even if it's not going to be funny, despite the fact that it's uh, not going to necessarily be what people think of as stand-up. And I thought that was very interesting because when we look at all of these comedians that are transitioning into this style of comedy, there is that balance where not everything will be funny. And should they sacrifice a laugh for making a poignant point? I mean, that's definitely 100% agree. Um, that is what, that, that, that is definitely what, what the vibes you get from Nanette, where it's, I'm pretty sure I read in my research, um, I think they did a TED talk, they're talking about they're not pulling their punches. Comedian's job is to pull punches. Like, I'm going to yeah. make a joke about this sensitive topic, but I'm going to turn it into a joke, turn it into a laugh. And so no progress gets done on that point, basically. I think the point is, you, you can, if comedians write jokes about, certain sensitive issue and then just end it with like a harmless joke it's like no it, it makes people think about it for a second but then it's like oh okay we're back to joking we don't have to think about that anymore and that was very much i think uh, hannah gatsby was like oh, no we need to talk about this we need to not end this on a joke because this isn't a joke this should never be a joke um and i th i think it's I, I, my, I, what I, from what I, because I love it when that happens. I love watching stand up or comedy where they just stop and they go, no, this is real and this is what's happening. And I think there's a bit of pushback from people who don't understand or don't want the idea that comedy needs to be just comedy and it can't be intermixed with both. It can't be intermixed with some sort of emotional uh element as well and i don't want to i think there's been a move of that as well um i mean you've got shows at the and tv writing as well with um this way up by ashling b um yes being a very perfect example of like a very very funny show dealing with like really serious stuff to do with mental health and um stuff like that feel good with may uh, by may martin same sort of uh yeah. area of I felt Fleabag tackled tackle something mm -hmm. very similar. Definitely. 
So it's becoming a thing that I think is becoming more mainstream. Because people are still, you still hear people say, "Oh, I don't want to watch that because it's got like some emotion. It's not, it's not funny. I don't want to think about all that." And I think, but uh, and that's not to say it's probably never happened before. If there's a lot of comedy in the past that's intermixed with real things, but I think yeah, there is just a trend of less pulling of the punches. Yeah, because of course the one of the big discussions about. Uh, offensive comedy is is that actually comedy is an incredibly useful tool for uh, taking down big not necessarily organisations, what am I looking for just sort of big negative elements of society mm -hmm. and we're making them small and we're laughing at them and we're deconstructing it through comedy and we feel better about it because we've made a joke out of it and I think that's often a very powerful point but equally it gets used as the end point of that discussion and it goes well now that we've laughed about it we don't have to address the seriousness of it it's a way to make ourselves feel better about it as opposed to addressing it and yeah exactly. this is deliberate of course i think because also i think like it's that debate between we have to be funny at the same time but then that was the first time i felt a comedian had said i don't really care if this is funny or not this is more important than that yeah, I think it happened. It's, there have been examples of it previously, politically more so than I think. And obviously, the net okay. is probably you could argue there's obviously an obvious political aspect to it. But I mean, in terms of like, um, comedians want people to take direct political action now, but not having it have any sort of emotional connection to the person. I think the difference is probably the personal versus the political. Yes, that's true. The net, the net feels very, very personal and it was obviously political as a connection but then someone who i read about i've never seen this comedian's stuff but i read he came out a lot of my research was mark thomas who his shows were completely like he did stuff where at the end he was like convinced con genuinely convinced trying to tell people to go out and like um i think graffiti things was one of them um like just go out and like actually do, like he, he wanted people to march on uh I'm paraphrasing a lot because I can't remember them, but like he would, he generally would in his shows would want people to go and um, take action, and I think yeah. some did. I think, and he did he did stuff on uh, he did a show called Dam Busters, which was about the creation of yes uh, a bunch of dams in I can't remember what country, but they were like that were like abusing a lot of human rights, and um, so I've seen it. It's definitely been that way before, and then now I think it is. Now, as um, I think just with the changing of the times, it's becoming more personal um, to the comedian as opposed to... And there is like there is a mix of both. Um, something I saw recently uh, was Tim Heidecker. He did a show, I think it was a few years ago, called An Evening with Tim Heidecker. If you don't know Tim Heidecker, it's from um, Tim and Eric, the sketch troupe. Uh, very absurdist comedian, but he basically did a stand-up show where he dressed up as a very stereotypical sort of older straight white man right wing leaning comedian that can't get away with jokes anymore and did a whole stand up show as one of those but like failing to tell these jokes um yeah. that, like he tried like he would try and tell a joke about like oh veggie burgers and then he'd like mess up the punchline and, and then be like no we're doing it again we're doing it again and then yell at the audience like why are you laughing why are you laughing it's not that's not the point and he's and i that that, that level of like um Putting a point across, being very, very funny, uh, and that's like in the past, past few years. Um, but then, yeah, he, he, in, in that playing a character, 
which I guess is satire then. I guess it's a, I guess, it, yeah, it, 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 I think it'll probably need its own word, but it's not satire is what we're seeing in a lot of these very personal um, shows and very personal stand-up sets. But um, but also, like, these comedians, they aren't just court jesters anymore. No. They are individuals with a platform and a following. I don't think you can blame them for trying to say something at the same time. And then, I don't even know what my point is here, but we're in an age where comedians are being heavily criticised for how they discuss big, important topics, often more so than our politicians are criticised for discussing the same topics. So in a sense like as a society we're putting pressure on these just comedians to be saying something and we're acknowledging that what they say has an important impact on how we see the world or maybe we don't maybe that maybe that is one of the arguments against why we shouldn't have a such a sort of vigorous cancel culture is because ultimately we're cancelling people who haven't got a significant enough platform to make a change do you know what i'm trying to say there i do know what you're trying to say and i think thinking about it now it's something that's been people people do look to stand-ups for like some sort of confirmation of yes of, of, of like that, that something is wrong or that something needs to happen and there are some examples I want to, I can think of but I don't really want to say them because I don't want to give credit to some names um, but it's a weird thing where you look to some comedian um, a lot like a lot of times like where after a big event happens to sort of say well what's is, is this okay is this not okay what do we think what do we think as people who share this view? It's almost... It's a preaching to the choir problem. A lot of the time. Yeah. A lot of the time, if you're a fan of a comedian... Let... Uh, I don't want to give... I don't want to give names to... I don't want to give empower to names of people I don't approve. But let's say someone who's putting out vaccine misinformation. And yeah, so there's yeah. some sort of vaccine sort of thing happening. And then they you look forward to them being like, is this is this what we think? Is this what not what we think? Um... Which then kind of puts pressure on uh, other comedians to do the same, but for good, if that makes sense. Like, I, I mean, I, 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 luckily, I, thought, I, I found a lot of comedians and follow a lot of comedians who do try and, with everything they post and everything they do, like, build someone up. And that, because it, 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 the comedian is sort of a voice of the people, in a sense there's um people align themselves with comedians that they think sort of that's my sense of humor this is who i like and um there is a problem with preaching to the choir where if you did a i read an article as well this is looked at Stuart lee and mark thomas where let's say mark thomas is a pretty example of someone going out extremely left-wing uh, saying you know go out and make this change if he did a whole stand-up set for an hour long taking down the conservative government and saying that all these things need are terrible need to change to his audience who are already left wing because they like him and they agree with what he's saying then what 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 what's really being changed stand up a lot of people say stand up doesn't change people's mind because you're already going to see who you agree with you're going to see a show by Hannah Gadsby these days you're not going to be a right wing sort of conservative uh uh, man, um, for like, I was trying to think of a better word, but like, you're not gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna go to Hannah Gatsby because you, you already, well, Hannah Gatsby already has the reputation that they have. You're gonna go because you agree um, with, with, with their sentiment. Um, it's very rare 
do you see that you find someone big enough to be like, I don't agree with what this person says, but I'm going to go to their show and, and watch it. Or I don't agree with... People are very vocal saying that people aren't funny online for the smallest thing. And as soon as that becomes any way political, any way transformative, that sort of dissipates, I feel. I'll ask you one more question. It's, it's a very broad question, but but just this idea that um, overall, a lot of comedians are transitioning into bringing deeper issues into their sets, discussing trauma, addiction, grief, um, the dead dad set, as I, I think is one of the terms that I've sort of heard discussed between comedians on a lot of podcasts and stuff. And I basically, where do you think that's going to go? What is the future of this? Is it going to be that everybody does comedy like this or is it going to reverse and nobody does? I don't know. Where does, where does this go from here? The dead dad set was a trend from around 2011-ish that became like the status quo of Edinburgh. I think one person did a very successful show about the passing of their father and then it seemed like the next few years everyone had a show about every sort of little element of trauma, which is where Dead Dad set came from. It was a set about their father's passing, set about uh, some other sort of tra being hit by a car, whatever traumatic event people had. And since then, it seems to have grown into a uh, more mainstream because the fringe is very indie, very... Uh, uh, not uh, mainstream hitting uh, sort of place. And now with like, because of streaming services like Netflix, I think that's the main reason or the only reason maybe that the net was able to have the reach that it did. Um, yeah, I, I being would agree, yes. Put out everywhere. I don't think anyone would have heard it who wasn't maybe really into stand-up already. It instead, unless it got pushed in front of everyone and been told this is award-winning, you should watch it. Um, and it's hard... I think to quantify where things are going to go now and I, because of I think because of COVID because this is this is already going to um, be turning into some sort of very new creative landscape where new where people are reevaluating as we do sort of inside just everything people kind of reevaluated every sort of aspect of their life and uh, how we work with forms and how especially live performance which um, was completely destroyed during the pandemic as an industry and is slowly trying to rebuild itself. And that's going to be a large part of it. And as people also go through uh, very emotional periods in their life during the pandemic, and ultimately, I think because of social media and YouTube and being able to know people more personally, and I, I, th I, th I think that's going to contribute to people being able to be more of who they want to be in their set as opposed to a character, an exemplified character. The other problem, which I didn't get, I, I, I realize what this is about to wrap up, but the other problem that I think is a part of this that we didn't really touch on is the ego sentiment of it all. Because undoubtedly there is an ego element to stand up. You're going out on stage as a version of yourself and people are either accepting you or they're not. And it's very hard, I think, for, for anyone to go out there that often and in success see a lot of praise and not let that get to their head. And I think, some, my, my argument is I think some people have made that change or attempted to make that change with their heart being in this egotistical place, not necessarily in a, in the right sort of approach. I don't know how to, I don't know how to phrase it. And I think that's what we're seeing a bit, a bit more often recently. People saying, I want to join on this wagon, 
but not being emotionally communicative enough to properly um, address it. So ultimately, I think things are going to get like even more sort of personal and uh, emotional stand up because we've already seen that with Annette and Inside. But I think it might become a bit, a, a bit of a um, it's it's pre treaded ground. Yeah. It's going to be a bit like. A, it's going to be like it's, 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 this is a bad metaphor but it's going to be like a marvel movies it's going to, they're going to get you're going to get 3 a year and you're going to feel emotionally exhausted um is what i'm worried about which is then going to lessen the blows of the ones out there that i think really do matter maybe but that's a pessimistic view but i do I basically i do think things are going to change that's fantastic well thank you so much for staying and, and chatting that was so interesting oh no worries it was my pleasure And that is it for this episode of Dissecting the Frog. Find out how you can get involved and check out more of what York Comedy Society do on all of our social media pages. There is surely something for everyone. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again very soon.